Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors, they are the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I am delighted to introduce my next guest, Joel Kotkin. Joel Kotkin is an internationally recognized authority on global, economic, political, and social trends. He is the Roger Hobbs Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and Executive Director of the Houston-based Urban Reform Institute. He is also the Executive Editor of the widely read website NeoGeography.com and has a regular column in Spiked in the United Kingdom, the National Post in Canada, and the American Mind. Joel is the author of 10 previously published books, among them his most recently entitled The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class, as well as The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, and the widely praised The New Class Conflict, which describes the changing dynamics of class in America. He has published numerous reports on these topics um, and also ranging from the future of class in global cities to the places with the best opportunities for minorities. And finally, he's co-edited the collection entitled Infinite Suburbia with MIT's Alan Berger. Joel, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Well, it's my pleasure. So, Joel, where were you born and how did your early childhood experiences influence your thoughts on cities? Is this going to cost me like $150 an hour? Um, uh, uh, no, my, my going rate is much cheaper than that. Okay. Um, I, I was uh, I was actually born in Germany, in Heidelberg. Uh, my father was in the U.S. Army. Um, and uh, then I grew up my earliest years in Brooklyn uh, from a Brooklyn family on both sides. Um, moved to Long Island uh, when I was, we moved when I was five and um, grew up more or less in, I would say, in the shadow of New York City, 32 minutes by train. Um, and, and when I first moved there, almost everybody uh, worked either in downtown Brooklyn or Manhattan. So uh, you would say you, New York is home. I would say New York, New York is home. It's still in my accent. Um, I still have some <laughs> family there, although I now have more family in Florida. Um, but um, yeah, I would say New York is home. New York is certainly the, um, I would say, where I got my appreciation for cities, appreciation for urban history, uh, and also an appreciation of what can go wrong. Um, my my father uh, was a, a physician working in Bedford-Stuyvesant um, in a hospital, and I got to see a lot of things that were or heard about a lot of things that weren't too pleasant. And my mother was an emergency room nurse in Far Rockaway, which uh, it was not exactly paradise either. 
Wow. Well, I'm I'm interested as we have our conversation today because we'll be speaking a lot about you know what defines a city and the uh, sort of the difference between the urban core and the suburbs. And so, perhaps to start um, more specifically on your work, you have a wonderful book entitled "The City: A Global History" that provides a wide ranging survey on the evolution of urban life. And in doing so, it attempts to address the timeless question of what makes a great city. Um, Joel, how, I guess, first and foremost, would you define a city? Well, a, a city is really, um, and I think the, the definition, by the way, I think will be changing over time. But a city is a place where people get together to you know, perform certain tasks. They they um, they have a consciousness of that place. Um, it, it's more than a village. It's more, um, uh, more self-defining. Um, it's more interactive. Um, uh, again, I think we're headed into an era where a lot of these definitions may not be as important. But I would say three things that a successful city has always needed is a safety. First and foremost, safety. If you don't have safety, you're in trouble. The second thing uh, would be obviously a thriving economy. And the third thing is some sort of sense of specialness, that a place, that a city is not just something that could be replaced by another city or another place, um, that sort of sense of uniqueness. Um, and that's what I think keeps, you know, and will keep places like New York, like Boston, um, maybe like Seattle, um, like Miami, may keep these places sort of unique and have something to offer, even if their economic function is not as central as it once was. Yeah, I mean, maybe to underscore that um, and making references to to the book again, uh, which is such a wonderful survey, um, you argue for those three characteristics and you state that there's uh, sacredness, security, and let's say busyness or commerce, right? And that all of these three need to be in balance and that when that is not the case, you make the argument that cities begin to decline. Right. So I was curious if you could share one or two leading examples from your survey that illustrate this phenomena. Well, certainly, I mean, there are some great examples. I mean, one of the things that, for instance, throughout the Middle Ages that restricted the growth of cities was the fact that they were unsafe and that it was unsafe to go from one city to another city, um, that you couldn't go out at, at night. I mean, now, even ancient Rome had these problems, but when they got to be worse and there was less order, um, cities began to uh, to deteriorate. Um, certainly, um, the best example that, that I'm old enough to remember was the collapse of public order that took place in the 60s and 70s in places like New York, where, you know, I I was I was mugged. My 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 great aunt was mugged. Um, it was a uh, uh, you know, you would walk down the streets and you always be looking behind you who wants this? Um, so I think uh, the, the decline of New York in the 60s and 70s was a reflection of that. I think the comeback of New York, which was significant um, in the uh, in the um, 80s and particularly the 90s, was because crime went down. I think that's a really good case. Um, I think that 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 then, then the, there's a question of economic function, which changes. You know, we Cities have been defined by their economic function. Now, historically, from almost until the 19th century, cities were places of commerce, places where p 
people traded ideas and traded products. Um, then in the in the middle and late 19th, early 20th, they became industrial centers, including, by the way, New York City, which had 1951 million people working in manufacturing. Um, that began to fade. That created another uh, another problem. And then there was the rise of what, what uh, Jean Gottman called the transactional city, which was the high-rise city driven by uh, professional business services. I think that the we've peaked out of that era. I, it won't go away entirely, but um, I think we're headed towards a different era, which we can't be completely sure what it's going to look like at the end. But I don't think the vision of a Corbusier-type, you know, cities of of you know 80 story buildings um i i don't think that's what we're going to see a lot of yeah and i think your your book the human city delves into this in quite a bit of detail and we're going to talk about that um in just a few minutes but perhaps dwelling a little bit longer on these three pillars that you discuss in the in the book you one of them is the sacred right so how how would you define then the sacred in a in the contemporary city that is arguably more and more secular? Well, it's definitely more and more secular. Well, I think there is there are two different um, answers. One is a kind of, if you will, sacred, but not necessarily religious sense. I mean, in other words, you know that excitement that you feel when your plane is coming down and you're coming into New York or you're coming into Chicago and you see this this amazing. Um, uh, array of buildings and and and, and um, you know, all the different various architectural wonders. Um, that's something. But I do think that the decline of religion and the decline of family is probably the biggest problem facing cities, um, and one that, frankly, the urbanists don't seem to pay attention to at all. Um, you know, you think about. Um, you know what it what is you know what is happening in in the urban centers it really has a lot to do with the fact that there aren't the sort of intermediary institutions that are in between the state and the individual or capital and the individual like i'm right working right now on a um on something on the role of religion in cities and you know i when i was a kid growing up working class um you know italian irish kids got good educations in New York City at the Catholic schools. Um, the um, We had a, um, a um, we had churches played a very important role. They still play a role, but they're, but they're really um, um, hurting. But, you know, in, in doing this work, what I'm finding is that, that there are, particularly with the opening of school choice, there may be some really great opportunities for different kinds of education. I was in Houston, I visited a, uh, um, something called the uh, uh, Saint Can uh, Constantine's uh, Academy, uh, where it's run by uh, various factions of the Orthodox Church. And what was really interesting is they have the kids that have to learn uh, either Greek or Latin by the fifth grade. Um, I can tell you, that I don't think there's a high school in this country practically, that, certainly public high school, that provides it. So I think that the, this need for creating a sort of grassroots culture, you know, when you think about the neighborhoods of, let's say, the north end of Boston, for instance, um, and the role that was played by the churches, this was something that held the city together, that sort of made up in some cases for, you know, some of the more negative aspects. 
I think we're 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 seeing that go away. And what what is one thing I have noticed is there's a lot of building of of uh, of religious institutions in the suburbs of the Sun Belt cities, but not in the inner cities. Hmm. I guess what I hear in your answer that it isn't um, just about uh, shared religious beliefs, but it's about uh, a sense of community um, right. that that brings us together um, in that way. Like particularly um, like a parish, you know, which is a you know which is a physical uh, neighborhood. I think that, that was a very important way. By the way, not just in the West. Um, my colleague Ali Medeiros uh, talks a lot about the use of these kind of neighborhood structures in Islamic cities in, in the 12th century. Mm. So, you know, he, you touched upon the question of, let's say, uh, the sacred in contemporary cities, um, but perhaps we could talk a little bit about security mm. because security in, in I would say, a contemporary global setting is inextricably linked with the networks of technology. Uh, and in a way, there are no more physical borders to defend, so to speak. Um, so in your mind, how does the contemporary city or how can uh, the contemporary city provide more secure environments for its citizens? Well, I think, you know, we already have done this. Now, you know, one can can say that maybe Giuliani and Bloomberg went, for instance, too far. But the fact that that for me, going back to New York um, in the 1990s and the early 2000s and not thinking about crime was an enormously positive thing. Um, so I, I think that we know that you, obviously you need the police presence. You need some system where people who are habitual um, offenders are not allowed back on the streets. I have a friend in New York who was aimed at with a crossbow by a crazy person, or I assume crazy person, in, in Washington Square Park. The guy was arrested and the, out on the street the next day. You know, um, we and and it and and what's interesting is progressives who are the big, you know, ideological defenders of cities, but implement policies that drive people out of cities. Um, and the classic case is obviously. You know the the you know what's happening in San Francisco, what's happening in Los Angeles, what's happening in in parts of New York, what's happening in St. Louis, which is you get these prosecutors who, you know, they don't think protecting the public is their first priority, um, and um, you know that's I think in a lot of ways that's as important and maybe more important than the results of the pandemic directly. Hmm. Well, I would hope that despite our political beliefs, um, that we all share the desire to um, to lead safe lives um, and, and for our children to also uh, live safe lives. I mean, unfortunately, we, we recently had another one of these uh, shootings um, and they're all over the news and in, in, in tragically in an elementary school. So I think this is a, a, a very big question today. Um, I would just hope that more people across party lines could have civilized conversations uh, about these really fundamental rights that we have to live freely and safely and securely. Um, but maybe we can transition, you know, now pivoting to uh, your book, The Human City. Um, so according to the Wall Street Journal, 
Your book, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, presents an evidence-based and clear-headed exposition of the pro-suburban argument, enriching our understanding of what defines the contemporary city. Joel, you question the prevalent kind of thought um, or that denser urban environments are more superior or more desirable than less dense urban environments. So, Joel, what what virtues do you see in the suburbs? Okay, well, the first thing is when we talk about dense areas being more advantageous, they are for certain people, particularly at certain stages of their lives. When you're single in your 20s, you want to be in a place where there's a lot of single people in their 20s, you know, and, you know, you're probably feel a little more confident in your ability to resist, let's say, crime. You don't have kids, so you don't worry about the schools. Um, I mean, we found we've done some uh, analysis over time. Um, and what we found is the highest period of people living in urban core environments is about, eight, about 18 to 24, around age 30, it starts to drop by the, you get in the 40s, it really drops. Um, because as people get older, they have different needs. They Maybe they're married, they need a little more space. Maybe they have children, they have to worry about schools. Um, you know, when you're 45 years old, you're not as likely to want to go out to the jazz club and come back at two in the morning. You're, you know, you just, you just change. So I think where suburbs are attractive is they provide to families and to people who have, you know, gotten out of their system, that period of going out late at night, you know, um, hooking up with people, whatever it is. Now, some people stay there all their lives. Some people live this lifestyle into their 60s and, and even 70s. I mean, there are those exceptions. But when we look at where people live at certain times of their lives and where they're moving, it's overwhelmingly to suburban areas. Now, one of the big things that I work on is, you know, how do we make suburban areas in, in some ways more attractive and able to do some of the historic things that cities did? Because in the past, people would move to the suburbs. It was like a bedroom. You go to sleep there, you get up in the morning, you get on the train or you get in the car and you drive to downtown. And so you didn't really spend much of your time in the suburb. That has changed. I think that more and more suburban areas have good restaurants. They have immigrants, which is why they have good restaurants. Um, they have um, they become much more open to, to, to gay couples. They have more cultural activities. And of course, things have changed. You know, there was a time where if I wanted to see a, 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 a European movie, I had to go to New York or I had to go to, you know, West LA or someplace like that, you know, with maybe five places you can get it. Today, you, you go on Netflix and you get it. You know, the, the digital revolution has spread culture out a great deal. And then the movement of immigrants into the suburbs um, has changed the, the food culture. For instance, the best Vietnamese food in America is right here in Orange County because that's where the Vietnamese are. Um, the 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 best Indian food in um, in the in the Houston area is in Fort Bend County, where there's a big Hindu temple and there's a huge Indian community. Um, I'm sure Edison, New Jersey, is probably got some of the same things. So what we're seeing is a change both in the ethnicity 
of, of who lives in suburbs and also this this sort of gradual movement of educated millennials into the suburbs which means you start to get different kinds of restaurants you get diff different kinds of cultural uh, uh things um look here in orange county 30 years ago it was basically a you know a cultural desert today the south coast rep is one of the top places for new plays in in the country um culture is dispersing and it's dispersing both to different regions and it's also dispersing to different parts of regions so we're so, seeing reinvention joel I'm, I'm curious as an architect and as an academic you know i i attend many conferences many presentations i also have a graduate degree in urban design so i'm very interested in the ways in which cities or buildings build cities but in general when you attend most of these events you tend to hear the opposite that we are becoming far more urbanized and we're actually moving out of the suburbs and into the dense cities and whoever your... is saying that is 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 on some drugs and i'd like to know what they are because they're they're really good for delusion i mean so can you can you this, i mean the, 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 the census numbers are so clear Maybe that's what we should dwell on, you know, rather than because really what I'm interested in 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 having you on the show is that you do present a voice based on data driven analysis, which I believe you you garner mostly from IRS tax returns, right? And IRS, so IRS census and American Okay. So what what is that data telling you? Okay. What does that data tell you? Basically, first of all, um, although people will say, oh, it all started with the pandemic, it was starting well before the pandemic. Um, about somewhere between 80 and 90% of all metropolitan growth in the um, in the last decade took place in suburbs and exurbs, okay? 96% um, of that growth was among people who are not white, okay? Or you know, if you want to, you know, now most Hispanics actually identify as white, but let's say non-hispanic whites were about four or five percent of that so what, what you what you're clearly seeing is that people are moving we're seeing the same thing with jobs um the job growth is much stronger generally speaking in the suburbs than it is in the cities now how people can say people are moving from the suburbs to the cities they're just there's no evidence you know you can find an, an example of here, here's somebody they lived in you know, in the suburbs of Dallas, and now they live in a condo in downtown Dallas. Well, I've actually interviewed some of these people. It's quite funny. They don't spend most of their time in their condo in downtown Dallas. They live in a ranch two hours away. But be that as it may, we know it's a very small group. I mean, if nothing else, the economics don't work. I mean, you're going to give up your, your house in, in the suburbs and you're going to live in a one-bedroom apartment that costs twice as much? Maybe not. Um... I think that generally speaking, also um, people as they as they get older, um, you know, this the whole thing of you know the, the the retirees moving to the cities. We know it's the exact opposite direction, because when you're older, you feel more vulnerable. You're not going to go to the jazz club till two in the morning. Um, you you want you know you want to simplify your life. You don't want to complicate it. When you're young, being complicated is fine. You know, when you're in your twenties, that's a good time for complications. Um, so, I think that 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 the the suburbs offer a different choice. Now, the difference is going to be, given the revolution in in at home work and the ability to work remotely, in particular, I think you will start to see more suburbs beginning to develop 
some of the characteristics of cities. I'll give you a good example. The Domain, which is uh, in North Austin, they have you know, hotels, office buildings, and small apartments surrounded by predominantly single-family homes. But the Domain gives somebody the option of living in a pretty much suburban environment, but you can walk to the restaurants, you can... Uh, you know, you have access to shopping locally. And I think you're going to see more of that. I think you're going to see more suburbs beginning to develop walking districts, beginning to develop downtowns. New Albany, uh, Ohio is a good example. Uh, Naperville, Illinois is a good example. Okay, right here, of course, Orange, California is a good example. Fullerton, California is a good example. I mean, the, the days that the suburb was sort of, if you will, anti-urban, I think are over. I think the suburbs are going to become more urban, but they're not going to be cities in the traditional sense. They're going to be something new. So I, I think that would be a good break. We're coming to our break. Um, and when we come back, I would like to continue to speak to you about um let's say the the role of suburbs in the building of the contemporary city, and maybe again continue to have you weigh in on. Um, whether or not the cities are, uh, the suburbs are places of creativity um, and uh, greater ethnicities. Um, so please don't miss um, the second half of this conversation. We will be back in just a few minutes. Thank you. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back 
Right before the, sh- the break, I was speaking with my guest, Joel Kotkin, about the future of the contemporary city as it relates to the development of suburbs. And so, Joel, um, during the break, I was thinking about um, some friends of mine. They're this uh, amazing couple that lives in New York, um, actually in Brooklyn, in fact, um, both creatives. Uh, she's an architect. He's in the fashion industry. And they never for one minute uh, thought about moving out of uh, New York City for all the things that that being in Brooklyn can offer you. Right. Um, and but they now have two young girls, and they are really contemplating moving out into the suburbs. And I talked to them, and they've expressed that kind of angst because there's this belief, you know, that in moving out to the suburbs, they're going into an environment that is perhaps less healthy. It's less creative. It's less diverse. So what would you say to these um, like kind of prevalent ideas about uh, the suburbs? Well, first of all, in, in terms of, uh, of what's happening um, in, in terms of ethnicity, let's start there. The biggest growth in the foreign-born population in the United States has taken place not in New York, but in Miami, Dallas, and Houston, Okay. Um, there's also a lot of growth in some smaller cities, but it's coming from a small base. But, you know, f- so first of all, the if those are areas, and particularly I know Houston and Dallas very well, um, it's overwhelmingly suburban. It's not dense urban almost anywhere, just a few places. So clearly they're moving there. We, we did the 50 fastest growing big counties. All of them are becoming more diverse. The biggest concentration of Mexican restaurants in America is um, per capita is Humble, Texas, <laughs> a far suburb of Houston. Um, there's a tremendous amount of um, of movement um, in terms of, of uh, technology. Like you talk about creative. Well, did anyone ever notice Silicon Valley and Route 128 were both in the suburbs? I mean, that's where the overwhelming amount of tech is. For all the talk about New York tech, it, it looks good until you until you break it down by per capita. Then it's about average. Um, same thing, by the way, is true in LA, which used to be way ahead. Um, so I think that you know you have if you look at tech, it's in the suburbs. Now the the arts are 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 a little bit more complicated. Um, there has been movement in the arts up to suburban areas, but the arts um, are something that that are harder to move. Um, and so, the, but I think where you, what I would say to your friends is, why don't you check out where your friends are moving? Um, there are suburbs, my brother happens to live in the Hudson Valley. And, you know, if I lived in New York, that's where I'd be. And you could be within an hour to Manhattan, but there are lots of good restaurants that there are good cultural institutions. Um, uh, there are, um, I'm, you know, there are lots of, of places to go in terms of recreation and parks. In terms of talk about healthy, we know for a fact that the highest rates of deaths from COVID were in inner cities. Um, you know, there were some isolated places like uh, Native American reservations that are also bad. But but generally speaking, auto-dependent suburbs were least the, were the least impacted. Some of the New York suburbs, by the way, were hit hard because they were train suburbs, you know, and and so they they were hit a little harder. So healthy then in terms of access to nature, it's not even close in, in a well-designed suburb. Now, like I think that growing up as I did on Long Island, I thought we, we, we did not have the 
they did not preserve enough of the open space that would have made it much more pleasant to be there. But when you look at, at what, for instance, what's being done in these new communities out in the woodlands and outside Houston or um, or at, in the Irvine Ranch, there's lots of open space. Um, I mean, you can you can ride your bike from central Irvine to the beach. You can you know, they, they have they have paths for, for, for the you know, for the mountain lions. I mean, it's really quite, you know, it, you can you can do it right. And that's why you, you've referred to Ebenezer Howard. And I think that's kind of the ideal that that um, suburbs have got to transform. And that's why I would call to the architectural community and um, outside of my friend Alan Berger and say, look, this is where people are moving. You can make their lives much better by employing your skills in making those communities work. Um, and un unfortunately, um, they all want to design, you know, the newest uh, art museum in, in downtown That's or, or an 80-story pencil tower. Um, but that's not where the action is going to be. Well, I think you're making an important distinction because I think, um, you know, having read the book, The Human City, which I would recommend uh, for all of those that might be listening that are interested in the topic of cities, I think, you know, while you present this argument about the suburbs, I don't believe you're advocating for the reconstruction of the kind of mono-use suburbs such as Levittown. I think what you're proposing is a maybe alternative model to the suburb, which is, um, I guess, more closely rooted to the Garden City, perhaps, yes, um, which, of course, was developed by Ebenezer Howard, which you referred to earlier. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that for those in the audience that might not be familiar with the model of the Garden City and how it differs from the mono-use suburb that really gets a bad rap. For, for 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 good reasons. <laughs> I, I agree, but on the other hand, you have to view things historically. The when the when the the mono use suburb mass suburb was built, the you know, Levittown, Lakewood, you know, there are lots of examples. Uh, Forster City, um, you know, in those days, you had a huge number of people coming back from this from the service, and they they didn't want to go back into their crowded urban neighborhoods and have to answer to their mothers and aunts <laughs> so they 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 moved to these places but the economy that they serviced was largely an economy that was in the city so like for instance when i was a kid growing up in valley stream it was very much a production suburb um almost everyone worked in 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 manhattan or brooklyn and so the need to for the for the suburb to fulfill a lot of tasks wasn't really there um now the 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 suburb we're seeing today, let's say the woodlands, I'll use that as an example. Um, it's an employment center. It's a cultural center. It has it has a very very nice park space. Um, it has great running trails. It has um, it has you know restaurants. It has. I mean, actually, I I had to complain when I was staying there last time because there was some party going on in the club across the street. I mean, this is in, you know, West Houston, you know, almost outside of Harris County. So I think that what we're talking about is a new concept. And there are different ways of getting there. One way is the one that, that we've done here in Orange, California, for instance, and, and places like Naperville have done, where we've taken what had been a small agricultural town 
and turned it into kind of a downtown, a high street, they would say in the UK. Um, and and it and it works very well. Some places you have to create it from scratch because there was nothing there. Like the woodlands, there was nothing there. They had to create a downtown. And most of the new developments I'm looking at, Cinco Ranch and others, they're they're all doing the same thing. They're all trying to replicate the Garden City with a walking distance, and if possible, with the ability for people to live in a place and walk to restaurants, um, and in some cases to reduce car traffic in Ontario, California, they're even developing robots. So if you go to the supermarket, you can you can buy your stuff, put it on 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 a, on a, a drone or a robot. And it will bring it to your house so you don't have to get in your car and carry it. Because a lot of times you you take your car just because, you know, you don't want to carry the dry cleaning for a half mile. You're happy to walk the half mile. So I think there are ways that we can do things that are that are that are very environmentally friendly, uh, very community friendly. Um, technology is something that can conceivably help us in that area and provide an environment where people won't have kids. Because I'll tell you what worries me the most long term is the fact that we're going to a society where there are very few children and very few and very few functional families and long term that's going to be very disastrous and and i guess the growth from your perspective of of families is happening mostly in the suburbs because yeah and and the and the question really is you know people say well you know we what about you know the you know the suburbs are going to expand and every piece of ground is going to be covered first of all there's so much open space in this country and the population at best if we can prevent ourselves from losing population in most part most metro areas we're actually getting ahead of the game i mean when people say like uh, you know newsom gets there we need to build three million units i say and Hochul said two million units both states are losing population i don't know why do you need three million units if you're if you're losing population, maybe you want to improve what you have. I think, you know, we talked earlier about the idea of the of some of the older suburbs and older suburban areas where maybe maybe we should make it more possible for people to fix up old houses. Um, the houses um, are, are there. They're they're they're, you know, relatively close to the city. In a lot of ways, those are very well positioned places when you think about it, because a lot of the jobs are in the exurbs. And then jobs, there are still jobs downtown and you can go both ways. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, certainly Miami has a rich inner ring of historic uh, suburbs and they're closer to the dense uh, core. Um, and those tend to be more desirable, but also more expensive. As you move further and further out, you do tend to see more right. of the single use um, suburbs, let's say. Um, but I think, I think you're, what I hear in your response is that we have to, we can't just accept the model of the post 1950s suburb. We know that this proved to be challenging in many ways, but I think we could look at a better model, which is uh, what the Garden City promotes, which is a polycentric model where you right. densify and you offer a variety of uses. And certainly, I think this is, uh, you know, worth considering because now we work very differently and you in fact can work remotely um, in many of these areas um, in ways that certainly before the pandemic um, were not the case so i think we're in a we're in a place to be able to investigate that yeah and i, uh -huh. I just think that the, the fact that that first of all most jobs are created in the suburbs to start with 
And now that even people who work in the inner city are coming in twice a week, it changes the nature of, you know, if, if I have to tra travel an hour and a half or an hour and 20 minutes by train or by car, and I'm doing it once a week or twice a week, it's doable. Doing it five days a week is not doable. So I, I think that there's a, you know, we're in the period of, of transition and we ought to be thinking about how we can make the suburbs and cities uh, much more livable than, than they are now. And I think the, you uh, know, when you go to the new suburban developments that I've been looking at, you very rarely see the production suburb being built anymore. Um, you know, because, you know, frankly, when, when they ask the young buyers, what do they want? They, they want the clubhouse. They want the place they can walk to. They want the open space. Now, what's, what's a very good development is it, it's less and less golf and more and more, you know, uh, preserving nature and, and walking and biking trails. And that's certainly a big improvement. Mm. Well, I, I think there's a lot more that could be said about this, um, but I, I wanted to touch upon maybe before the end of the interview, we're coming to the last 10 minutes or so. Um, I wanted to touch upon your most, most recent book, um, which is entitled The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, um, where you make parallels between today, and I, I, I believe, and you could elaborate on this, but um, it's more focused on an American context, but uh, between today and the Middle Ages, when the concentration of wealth and power were in the hands of very few. Uh, arguably, this reality is exacerbated in leading global cities or leading emerging global cities, um, such as Miami. Um, so how do you see the connection between um, kind of rapid urbanization and inequality? Well, because what we see historically cities were places where working class people went to raise their lives like my own family they came from the shtetl in russia within a generation or two everybody was kind of doing okay some very okay some just okay but much better than it was in russia and of course given what happened uh, they wouldn't have been alive um if they had stayed so you know today that is much less the case that that much less the case that somebody can move to New York City without an outstanding education or a, a, a unique skill set and do really, really well. The the other problem is when we've had this concentration of wealth globally, a lot of that wealth has been applied to real estate. And that's helped drive the price of real estate way up. And global cities are the prime places where those people put their money. So you look at London, you look at Paris, you look at New York, you look at San Francisco, um, you look at Los Angeles, these are places where enormous amounts of money, a lot of it from overseas has been invested where, and sometimes by people who have two or three residences, some of whom are just, you know, collecting properties. So what we've seen is that the rise in housing costs has gone much faster than the rise in incomes. And so that's been the, the, the thing that's made cities uh, very difficult for working class people and increasingly for middle-class people. So I think that part of the, the 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 problem is that the inequality in the economy in general is just magnified in the city. And one of the reasons why, uh, let's say, middle and working-class people can't live, let's say, in New York or San Francisco, then they have to look at other places to live. And sometimes it's the outer suburbs of, of the Bay Area or, um, or the outer suburbs of LA, of LA or they move to a different state where they can afford to live uh, decently. 
Um, so, you know, I just think that we're in a, a period where this, this concentration of wealth has exacerbated the, um, the inequality that has always been in cities, but has made it much worse. And the kind of economy we have today doesn't have the positions that make it easy for people to move up. Um, so would you say that gentrification, which is a bit of what you're describing right now, is simply an inevitable byproduct of urbanization? It's it's the inevitable uh, byproduct of urbanization under current conditions. Yes, and you know what we'll do is we, we will. So we right now we're in a cycle where we either gentrify, or the, we have more slums. And it'd be nice to find a a third way of developing communities that can handle middle and working class people. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe I. Maybe I'll press a little bit to say in all of your research on cities, have you come across any good examples or good models uh, where cities have been able to both densify, but then keep a larger um, sort of cross-section of the population in the yeah. core or in the cities? Well, I was uh, I, I did a lot of consulting in Singapore and Singapore doesn't have the suburban option. It's a, you know, it's an island and, you know, unless they wanted to conquer, you know, parts of Malaysia, they're kind of stuck so they had to go high density they you know they just had no choice um what they did which was great is they they a they tried to build more family-friendly units unlike hong kong um the apartments are you know they're small by our standards but they're not not incredibly small and the program was to get people to buy their apartments um uh, lee kuan yu was very very outspoken one of the big problems you have in, in urban centers outside of the wealthy owners is you got a people who are a bunch of people who are renters who feel very vulnerable um and are very vulnerable um and don't have the same commitment that somebody who owns something is going to have um and so i thought singapore had done a really good job i think of 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 encouraging that and then around each one of those areas there was always restaurants and shops and banks and you know, it was very, very well planned. I wouldn't want to live there myself, you know, for a long period of time. But if if your option is what you see in in this in this in Hong Kong and in the Chinese cities, I'd certainly opt for it. Mm. It's, an, it's interesting to bring an international example, maybe a little bit more difficult to translate to the U.S. Given such um, differences in the political structure of, let's say, Singapore as compared to America, but nevertheless, an interesting one to. I'll certainly look into it further, not knowing very much about it. So, um, well, I've been uh, asking this of all of my guests um, at the very end of the interviews, um, and it's a it's a relatively simple and straightforward question. But Joel, um, what is your favorite city, and why? And given all of our discussions about what defines cities, I'm really interested in seeing how you'll answer this. The my favorite city in the world was Hong Kong under the British um, because it was the perfect combination, Chinese food, Chinese Chinese uh, entrepreneurship and British cops. Um, that's the that's the ultimate what you would want to see. It's hard to say I, I you know I, I think I love I like certain cities at certain points in their history. Um, LA in the 80s was a very exciting place to be. Um, Right now, I, I there aren't any cities I go to and I feel really excited by them. Um, 
in the sense of oh this is the future um i you know they're just they're just fewer of those places but the 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 best cases i i think would be you know that i can think of as la in the 80s hong kong prior to the handover to china uh would be two that would really stand out and i think you know i i was too young to remember new york in the 50s but what i told was it was pretty pretty amazing and what was interesting is middle class people lived in manhattan um and um and the dominance of manhattan over the cultural and and business life of the country was enormous at that time and it's just not that's one of the things of studying history helps you is you begin to understand that we used to build a lot more office buildings we used companies used to be headquartered in you know there was a time where a third of the fortune 500 was in new york city that's not the case anymore um so you know history is changing what the next model is going to be i don't really know i think i think what we're seeing in in particularly in texas um may be a hint of where we're going to be going over time um where you have some gentrification in the inner city and a lot of new cities being created in the periphery that may be the direction um, that we're going in over time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, and based on our conversation uh, this morning, I, 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 I wasn't surprised maybe by your LA answer in the '80s. Although I find the fact that you located at a particular moment in time to be a unique way, um, at least to answer this question. I was a little bit surprised about Hong Kong, though, being that it's such a dense city based on all the things that we just talked about. But perhaps more um, diverse, or maybe maybe more equitable. I'm not sure in the period that it you was discussed. just an incredibly exciting environment, you know. Mm. I I wouldn't have wanted to live there unless I had a lot of money, but it was an exciting. You walked in the streets and it was electric, and and there was a a, a sense of hustling and people coming from nowhere and building fortunes. Mm. That was just very exciting. You know, maybe you know, maybe even in some ways, what you might have seen in in the UK in the middle of the nineteenth century wasn't all pretty for sure, but it was exciting. So maybe what you're ad- advocating for is really just more. Uh, more varied ways to think about the city exactly. for us to have better cities, you know, dense cities, um, but also better suburbs, right? So that we can have more choices. Um, perhaps that's a good way to kind of end this discussion. Um, thank you again, Joel, for um, all of your work um, in researching cities and presenting them t- to us. Um, I would highly recommend that uh, anyone that is listening to this show go out and read some of your literature at the very least it might offer them a, a counterpoint to what they believe to be um, true about cities um, so that we can have a more robust discussion. Please join us next week when I will be speaking with the trailblazer Topeka Sam. She is the founder of the Ladies Hope Ministry not-for-profit organization based in New York City, and she's on a mission to provide new transitional housing for formerly incarcerated women throughout America. You won't want to miss her or her story. Thanks again, Joel. Enjoy it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 